This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see things in the cinema and we connect them to older films, classics and maybe not so much classics gone by, and hopefully you will hear about some movies you didn't know very much about. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts reporter with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. And you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Now today, we are talking about the Best Foreign Language Oscar nominees. Um, by the time you hear this, you'll all know who won, but we've gone to see the movies and cinemas. Some of them are still there, some of them are Netflix, and we'll be talking about these wonderful films that are up for Best Foreign Language at the 2019 Academy Awards. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast. A Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. As we mentioned at the top of the show, this show uh, is about the foreign language nominees for the 2019 Academy Awards. By the time you hear this, of course, the Academy Awards will be over, the Oscars will have been handed out, and uh, everyone will have been recovered from their hangovers by this time. So, uh, And, you know, the world will move along as before. But uh, we decided, because really the most interesting category these days is what's happening in world cinema around the globe, and not so much what's coming out of Hollywood uh, these days. Uh, you know, looking down the list of best pictures, of course, they've expanded it to more than five for best picture. And, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I've seen all the best pictures. I liked most of them. Uh, very few of them did I feel like a real connection to in the way that I often do to the foreign language films because, uh, you know, they're they're much more human stories, much more real stories than uh, than what we usually get from uh, the glossy Best Picture nominees. Yeah, and they, and they consider a large list of international films for the Best Foreign Language Picture. Um, interestingly, amongst the Best Picture nominees, the favorite is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. And this is, I think his third English language film, but, uh, you know, he is, he's nominated for Best Director as well. He is a Greek filmmaker, so, you know, there's still uh, a lot of 
international s- filmmakers who are coming to Hollywood to make movies. And I, I think of the group, the favorite is of the Best Picture nominees. The favorite is my favorite. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, Roma is amongst that list as well, which we will be talking in more detail about. But, yeah, I think you're right. And I, I, I've also been um, – listeners, regular listeners may know that I volunteer with Carbonark, independent cinema in Halifax. And the mandate of that uh, cinema series is to bring in and show, show screen, um, foreign language films, uh, documentaries, things that the mainstream cinema would not be interested in showing to people. And, uh, and as a result, I've been exposed to a lot in the last five or six years, been exposed to a lot of films and filmmakers that I never would have, have known about, or probably not. And, uh, you know, it's amazing to to see international cinema as a as a window into a culture you might not know too much about. Filmmakers like Pablo Lorraine, um, like uh, Sebastian Lilo, both of whom are from Chile, they're amazing filmmakers. Um, uh, I'm trying to think who else. Oh, Asghar Farhadi from Iran. These are, are filmmakers whose work has become really close to my heart in recent years. And, uh, you know, this year as well, there's another great list of, of foreign language uh, nominees, uh, five films. Um, let, me, let me list them out here. It's Roma. It's Cold War. Um, it's Shoplifters. Capernaum, the uh, Lebanese film. And uh, the fifth film is Never... Um, Never Look Away. Never Look Away. Thank you, Stephen. So the, the, those last two, Capernaum and Never Look Away, have not yet arrived but. in Halifax. But uh, <laughs> Carbonark, uh, forever on the case in the programming department, are planning to bring them. Capernaum uh, screens on Friday, March 1st, at Carbonark Cinema. And Never Look Away is later in March, if you are interested in, who knows, maybe one of those two films will win the prize for Best Foreign Language. I gotta think that Roma is the favorite. Um, but my personal favorite of of those three is pro- or those five, I should say, of the three that we've seen um, is Cold War. But we'll talk more about that uh, going forward, Stephen. Yeah, and, and we should point out, we're, we're, never look away. Neither of us have. Well, I haven't seen it yet. No, I, I haven't seen either. Screener yet. Nope. Um, and I haven't seen Capernaum either. But it'll be on Friday. I certainly will. Uh, never look away is by the same director as the 2006 uh, foreign language Oscar winner, The Lives of Others, which was a film that I was very fond of. And, uh, you know, a, a very uh, insightful and, and, and entertaining look at uh, life and, and a romance uh, behind the, the Berlin Wall during the Cold War. And uh, so it's hard, hard to say uh, how it will do. But I, I, th- I think we kind of know what the strong favorite is, but we'll talk about that later in the show. Yeah, gonna, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I said it already, like Roma is, 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 has an enormous amount of uh, nominations and it's up for Best Picture as well as Best Foreign Language. So it'll be interesting to see how it all works out. But of course, listeners will know the answer to that right now. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we wanted to talk about the Best Foreign Language as a category. This is something that I guess was invented in at the Oscars in the late 50s. And through the years, it has highlighted a great international cinema. I was trying to remember, just as we were starting out uh, this episode, Stephen, what was the first film I saw that was a winner or maybe up for best foreign language film? And uh, it was I, I came to it pretty late uh, in terms of like my cinema diet. But uh, I do very specifically remember seeing, um, I believe it was 1987's winner, Babette's Feast, because... It was a Danish film, and being half Danish, you know, I think I think my mother was like, "Oh, we should watch this." <laughs> you know, it's the Danish film that won a, a Best Foreign Language uh, award, and 
Yeah, Babette's Feast was terrific. It was a wonderful foodie movie, uh, a period drama set in Denmark uh, in years past where uh, a, um, a chef uh, cooks this incredible meal, this incredible meal for the locals in this town. And, uh, and it's really something. And so that, I think, clued me in to the fact that there were a lot of, it's, it's worth paying attention to this category. And then in recent years, Again, thanks to my work with Carbon Arc, but just in general, I've been wowed by the list of films that are considered for best foreign language. Now, I don't always agree with the one that wins. Of course, who does? You know, there's it's all up to personal taste. But uh, I'm I'm I try to make a point of seeing as many of those five films every year as as I can based on what we get to see here. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's it is the most interesting category in terms of you know, broader reaching uh, implications because often uh, the people involved with the the foreign language Oscar winner attract enough attention that they might be able to do something, um, you know, maybe a more mass market film perhaps uh, for a studio or, or um, you know, as, as we see with Roma, which is now on Netflix, perhaps they can tie in with that and get a, a broader audience. Um, so it, it, it's certainly a, a category with a lot of potential for the winner to, to go on to bigger and better things. And also, but also of course, introduce us to more interesting and, and uh, more realistic and more humane work. Um, my first, uh, my first foreign language winner that I would have seen is probably the tin drum, uh, which won in 1979. Uh, I think it was Volker Schlondorf. Uh, that's, I think I've got that right. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working from the uh, Gunter Grass novel about a boy in Nazi Germany who looks at the world around him and just he decides that he's not going to grow up. And he, uh, he, he, he makes this vow that he's not going to grow up, and he doesn't. He actually stays a boy. Uh, of course, he you know, matures mentally, but um, remains a boy as the world goes to hell in a handbasket. Because why would he want to be an adult in a world like that? And, uh, you know, it's, the, the film was actually uh, briefly banned in Nova Scotia for, for, uh, for reasons. I, I, because he's a, you know, they, they, the, the character wasn't played by a boy. They found an actor who looked boyish, I guess, enough to play the character. But because there was some depictions of carnal scenes involving a minor, uh, even though he wasn't being played by a minor, uh, it caused some, ruffled some feathers, but um, eventually the case was made that, well, no, this is a piece of, this is a work of art and it should be seen, you know, with the proper caveats and everything. And, and, uh, and of course it's gone on to become a classic. So, uh, you know, and I've, I've certainly watched it again since, and I've got the, the Criterion copy, of course, uh, in the collection at home. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a remarkable film. Also a very good book. I remember actually, Listen to the. I remember going to bed. They were doing a book at bedtime on CBC Radio in those days, uh, like at ten twenty every night, and they actually did the, the the tin drum. And so I actually heard it on a book at bedtime before I actually saw the movie. So I actually knew the story before uh, I ever um, got near the film. But it's it's an amazing film. But it, it it it's. I mean, the category kind of interestingly enough, the, the category kind of rose out of the ashes of the Second World War. Uh, it came along because after the war uh, and the countries overseas uh, started to get back on their feet and rise from the, the rubble of of uh, the damage of, of the Second World War. And, you know, there was a, a sort of a feeling that, you know, we need to pay, you know, this happened because we weren't paying attention to what was going on in other countries, that, that North American isolationism or American, American award thing, but, but you know, that isolationism and, and you know, not paying attention to the outside world uh, is a dangerous thing. And, you know, and so we're realizing that now, of course. Um, 
uh, it seems like we haven't learned from history, but but that's that's kind of what gave birth to this. So so in the aftermath of, of the Second World War, it, I think it was a juried prize. There weren't multiple nominees for this category in the first several years. So, but we got films uh, that are pretty hard to argue with uh, winning: uh, Bicycle Thieves by De Sica, uh, Rashomon by Kurosawa, Forbidden Games by Rene Clément. Um, you know, Gate of Hell, Estrada by Fellini. These are the first sort of run of uh, of the foreign language films, and those films remain classics. Certainly, much more so than a lot of. Uh, and again, this is why this category is 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 the most interesting of the bunch because you know you think of a lot of Oscar winning pictures from days gone by that like who has the urge to watch Argo again or yeah seriously you know, around the world in eighty days yeah exactly the, the the greatest show on earth um, I mean these are obviously the titles that get brought up obviously many of them you know but then you get things like Lawrence of Arabia of course and many that are considered classics but it, it the the spectrum goes back and forth um, yeah yeah and you know um, I full credit to the Academy for doing this because if anybody knows the history of the Academy Awards, it was invented to promote Hollywood specifically to promote and bring light uh, Hollywood and help market it. And that's always been the case. It's still the case even after 91 years. So, you know, uh, I find it funny because, you know, on social media, people talking about why wasn't this semi-obscure independent film uh, nominated? It had the best performances. And I'm just like, remember what it, the, the awards is, <laughs> yes. you know, go and go and watch the SAG Awards or the Independent Spirit Awards. If you want to see some of these lesser known films get the, the due that they uh, frequently deserve. But the Oscars have always been about the industry and about, you know, drawing attention to the best within the studio system. And that is very much the case. I mean, they expanded the best picture category from five to between five and 10 a number of years ago, just to allow for more love to be given to to these films and more prestige, but really it's a marketing ploy. And I don't mean to be cynical about it, but that's, it's good to keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, that's why it was created. I mean, it yeah. was the, the moguls who came together and said, we need to come up with a way to kind of, you know, especially because it was, I mean, the the Oscars kind of came out of the Great Depression as, a, you know, where the movie business was kind of going into the toilet because well, every business was going into the toilet. I mean, the first year of the Academy Awards was the same year as the stock market crash. So, uh, you know, they, they were kind of scrambling to, to, to add some prestige to their industry, especially after a number of scandals and, and so on and, and uh, issues about morality in Hollywood and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and that's, these are all factors that came together to, to bring the Academy into being as it were. Um, you know, and of course it's, you know, the Academy itself has since gone on to do great work in terms of archiving and, and film preservation and so on. Uh, but this is obviously their big, you know, their big moneymaker, their big, uh, Hullabaloo. It's, a, it's like the Super Bowl. Sometimes you get Prince at the halftime, and sometimes you get Maroon 5. Yes, exactly. So, uh, you know, sometimes you get Argo, and sometimes you get Lawrence of Arabia. So, um, but but we're, we're not talking about the big Hollywood films this year, uh, because because it is such an interesting run of, of foreign language films. And the first one off the mark is uh, Shoplifters, uh, which has played in Halifax. Uh, so you, you may have had a chance to see it, but it will obviously turn up in other places. Uh, if it hasn't already, uh, and uh, it, it's it's a lovely film. Uh, I'm glad I saw it. I, I don't think it's the strongest contender, which is probably why we're talking about it first. And and you have you feel the same way. Uh, the, yeah, the film by uh, Hirokazu Kurita, um, 
working from uh, his original story. Yeah, it's it's a film that, of course, we haven't seen two of the five nominees, so it's hard to compare all of them just yet. Uh, however, of the ones we had seen, Shoplifters played at Finn, the Atlantic International Film Festival in September, and I got to see it then, because even that point, it had gotten quite a good buzz. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a story uh, of a, uh, it was the Palm d'Or uh, winner at Cannes, so it's, it's quite well received, generally. Um, it's an impoverished family living in the margins of Tokyo. There's an elderly woman, an adult couple, a younger woman, and a boy. And they take in a neglected little girl, uh, and they try and sort of teach her how what they do. And what they, this family does in order to make a living is steal. Uh, they're a family of thieves. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's funny how lovely the characters are everyone is is um, you know they 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 have a uh, a very questionable way of of paying the bills and uh eating and and getting through their lives but they uh they are very thoughtful and kind and uh you know they they're a reasonably well-adjusted bunch uh, it's easy to to feel fond of these characters um I really liked all the performances. I liked the intim- intimacy of the story. They all live in this very small space. Um, but uh, I would say that if I had a critic critique of it, and um, not a lot of people are, I mean, I'm, most of the reviews from this film have been absolutely glowing, but I just felt like the rambling, there's a rambling kind of narrative that makes it, that that is absent a lot of conflict. Uh, it doesn't, I don't feel like the family unit is really threatened until the very end of the film. And even then, it feels sort of both kind of inevitable, but not, you know, not tragic. Um, You know, objectively, I I would say it's lovely and it's even moving, but I just felt that it was a bit long and uh, and just was missing some kind of uh, dramatic oomph that grabbed me. Yeah, it's I I like it as a portrait of a of a family. trying to make ends meet in, in a rough economic time. Uh, it's, you know, it's something we sh- I feel like we should be seeing more of this kind of thing from North American uh, filmmakers. I mean, Hell, and High, Hell or High Water was, is kind of in that, I guess, pond, as you, if, or whatever, in that kind of realm of, of filmmaking. But, but, but those kind of stories seem to have been few and far between. And here it comes from, um, from Japan, which, of course, has, you know, is known for having this fairly manic consumer culture. And, um, you know, and in the midst of all that, you know, these people are just trying to get by. Um, of course, it should be pointed out, they're not strictly thieves. The, the father has a job. Right, uh, that's as, true. He, and I think he's got, I think he's an ex-con, which is why he, you know, he can only work kind of temp jobs and day labor and that kind of thing. You know, he works on construction sites until he hurts his back. And, and then, of course, then they're kind of in desperate straits. And the mom works as, uh, I think, a healthcare worker, maybe in an, an old age home, I think, or a nurse. Um, I don't. I know we see her in, in like you know at work and 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 uh, in uniform and stuff. But uh, you know, at, at one point the the home, you know, has to make some cuts and the, the, there's some rivalry between her and another coworker. And the coworker has some dirt on the mom because you know she she said like I'll tell them you've been stealing and she goes well you've been stealing too. And it's like yeah, but you have more to lose kind of thing. Um, so you know there, there there are some real stakes at least. Uh, for these people in their day-to-day lives, but 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 you're right. It it, it takes it, it kind of we, we spend a lot of time in their lives, and I guess that's the pleasure of this film is is just watching them get through their existence. But the story uh, that doesn't kick in until late in the film, and only because one character kind of screws up, right? You know, so it's it's you know the, the, 
the unraveling happens because of their own undoing. It's not because of outside forces. And uh, Yeah, and there's the question of whether or not the little girl will wind up going back to her family. In a, her previous situation, she was clearly neglected and yeah. treated badly. They're, you know, borderline abuse, if not actual abuse. And, uh, yeah, and so her fate, I think, becomes – we get wrapped up because she's so sweet and uh, innocent. And, of course, this family treat is – teaching her some of the ways in which they get by and some of these tricks to, in order to, to steal. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, I sort of feel like, you know, the, the wonderful thing about foreign language films and films from other cultures is you get a window into the values of their culture. And I feel like the idea of a, a family that subsists by thievery in Japan uh, gives it, it says something specific about the way the culture is not you know that particular culture. I bet you, if you were from from Japan, you the, the the you might feel more emotionally engaged or more because of the way the film is commenting on their society. Um, and I always wonder about that when I watch something that is from a, a culture so different than the one we have here. How much the rules of that culture impact and how stuff some some things may be lost in translation. Yeah, I well, I don't feel that much is lost in translation with this film. I, I feel like this is a global story that this right. is have this is happening to families everywhere in the midwest you know in in war-torn countries uh in the middle you know the, that everybody is is kind of doing what they can to put food on the table and uh you know when it comes down to that basic uh, human need uh that isn't being fulfilled um you know I, I think it does reflect greater societal problems which is why i think it's a valuable film but uh, in terms of storytelling um it, it could have been stronger in that regard, maybe, uh, or you know, maybe if it it had stuck with more because the, the little girl is the most appealing character in the film, and and any scene that she's in is is, is going to be the most watchable and or enjoyable or most heartbreaking, most emotional, uh, and maybe if they even because there are other films I can think of that kind of take the point of view of of a, of a young child, and I thought maybe if they honed in more on that and tightened it up, uh, that could have made it a more memorable. And, and watchable film, because, of course, it ends on kind of an ambiguous note. I don't, uh-huh. Spoiler alert, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you know, the fil- film being ambiguous. You know, we don't, you know, we have to kind of read our, our own thoughts into what her future is going to be and what lies in store. And, uh, you know, how this training that she's received from her her artificial family, I guess, uh, will play out in later years. So, I don't know, maybe there could be a sequel, Shoplifters 2, and uh, and we could see where she is at, an, at a later point in life. But, um but yeah, the, the, there. Uh, I was while I was watching. I was thinking there are ways that this film could have been a little better, and that's not what you want to be thinking while watching a film. So, Stephen, earlier we talked about briefly the lives of others from director Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, which seems to me the most German name <laughs> of all German names. Uh, it won Best Foreign Language Film in 2006, and you were right. It was an amazing picture. So I'm really excited to see the new film from him, uh, which is uh, Never Look Away, which is coming soon to Halifax. Um, but yeah, I would recommend other people who are interested in checking out previous winners of this in this category, uh, Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards check out The Lives of Others. It's wonderful. And it was uh, from 2006, which was an amazing year. That The category also included Pan's Labyrinth, After the Wedding, 
uh, the Suzanne Beer film, Days of Glory, which is about Algerian soldiers, and Deepa Mehta's Water. Um, so, you know, those were, there was a lot of good movies in that category that year. Um, another favorite of mine is A Separation from t- 2011, and that's, that was my introduction to Asghar Farhadi, the Iranian filmmaker. His human, humanist dramas, they really, we were talking about films opening up a window into Iranian society and into the society of foreign cultures, and uh, it is really something to see. Now, Farhadi won again for a film some years uh, after. Um, he won again for A Salesman, and that was a film I didn't like as much as uh, A Separation, uh, or The Salesman, I should say. Um, but uh, he is a, he's a terrific director, and uh, he also has a film called The Past, which I really recommend. Um, but uh, an, an, another previous winner is up this year, and that is Paweł Pawłkowski. He is a Polish filmmaker, and uh, his film Ida, I think in 2013, won Best Foreign Language Film. It is an amazing picture as well, very much worth seeing. He, the first film of his that I ever saw was... Um, uh, uh, the Summer of Love from twenty from two thousand and four, and that that was the first uh, that was the first time I ever saw Emily Blunt in a in a feature film. Well, it's I, a, a, I don't know that film at all. Yeah, it's a same sex uh, uh, drama between two young women in I think Yorkshire, and uh, so it's an English language film. Um, now he has gone and he has made the film that is up for best foreign language film. He's also up for best director this year, Cold War, and. Um, it is really, it's really something. Cold War is, I think, of all the films in this category, is the favorite of mine. And uh, I had a, given that I really liked his previous work, I had pretty high expectations going into this. And uh, I, it did not disappoint. Um, I saw it at the film festival in September, and then I watched it again at last week just to see if it still held up. And it really does. It's a film I don't think should work as well as it does. It's, it's, it resists sort of typical storytelling structure as it regularly jumps through time from 1949 to like the middle, the mid 60s and follows the very tempestuous uh, love affair between these two characters. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you thought of it, Stephen, because I'm a big fan of this film. I, I really love this film. Uh, I'm, for some reason, I'm, I must be getting sappy in my old age because I, I'm loving modern romantic dramas, not romantic comedies, but, but, you well, know, there aren't a lot of romantic and there, comedies these no, days. Well, no, <laughs> Unfortunately. We, we moved on to the parody with uh, Rebel Wilson. <laughs> That's right. With her new film. But um, that is just so cliched that nobody wants to go near them. Uh, but, but a, an honest romantic drama that isn't a, you know, romantic, doesn't have a thriller aspect to it that just, you know, shows real, you know, it, it, yeah, sure. It's probably not the sort of film I would have watched in my twenties. Well, that's not true. But but you know, a younger audience may not uh, gravitate towards these kind of films. But it, but but there's you know real drama and and real theatrics in just the, the matters of the heart between two people it can be one of the most powerful things you can put on a screen. And um, you know, I, I was thinking about that watching if Beale Street could talk just to see a mature American romantic drama. Um, you know, and, and it, that was in, expressed in such a poetic way. In this case. Um, uh, it is, uh, you know, it, it's set in the '50s. It's a gorgeous-looking film, shot yeah. in black and white. Um, as with uh, Ida, uh, he likes to shoot in uh, a traditional sort of what they call Academy ratio—the kind of what you just see as a square film frame, like a classic film. He, he did it in Ida, and he does it here. Um, 
I haven't read anything about why he prefers to shoot that way, but uh, well, it, a summer the summer of love, I, I believe, was widescreen. So it's yeah. just I guess it depends on the subject matter of the film. Well, of course, that was an Eng- that was for an English language producer, and right, they probably sure. want I mean, it's, you know, and that was earlier in his career too. So I'm thinking that maybe um, you know because of because of the time period, because these films are set at a time when that's what films of that time looked like. He wants to keep that uh, traditional uh, look to it. I mean, Son of Saul was shot the same way, sure. although it was in color, a very muted color, uh, befitting uh, its setting in the concentration camps. Yeah. Here we go for a glossy, sharp, uh, luminous black and white look, as with Ida. Um, they're kind of companion pieces in a way. They're both set in the Poland of the sort of late 50s and into the 60s. Um, post-war, yeah. Yeah, post-war Poland. Where uh, the, the influence, the feeling of war is still very much there. Yeah, you can you can feel it in in, in, in people. You can see it in their eyes. I mean, uh, you know, and the, the, the main characters are young people who have the dimmest recollections of the war, childhood memories, or if that even. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're trying to make a new life for themselves, make a new country for themselves. And uh, in the midst of this, uh, you know, but this, this is an impression oppressive socialist regime and uh you know very it's very they're very catholic it's a very catholic country there's there's societal pressures um so they're up against a lot both uh in in that uh, in Ida uh, and and now in uh, in Cold War and so the, the the theme of freedom runs throughout it what it means what it costs uh there's a lot going on in this film and and you know I I I watched watched it through twice uh, just to make sure I could pick up on everything because there's, there's some it's obviously a very subtle film and uh, there's a lot of cues you need to to uh, to kind of catch along the way and and of course two great performances it should be noted by uh, Joanna Kulig and Thomas Cote as uh, the lovers Zula and uh, and Victor yeah they are something these two I mean Victor is Thomas Cote is very sort of roguish and handsome he's smoking oh, yeah. a cigarette and he just is like you know he's he's very confident he doesn't say much but the looks between him and and Joanna Kulig's character Zula and she's very flamboyant and, and forceful and not she's someone as a character she's certainly not willing to let anything stop her get what she wants and uh, well she wants Victor but uh, she also wants a certain amount of freedom and she wants to just do what she wants she's she's a young woman and she has a real talent as a singer and that's clear because she sings her own songs I after watching this I immediately went home and to find out if any of the soundtrack was available and I found three songs um, were available uh, on iTunes but uh, I I don't know if anything more is coming, but uh, yeah, she's amazing. And uh, it starts with, you know, uh, Victor finds her in this and and, uh, invites her to be part of this sort of folk dancing musical troupe. And then as it goes along, they try, or Victor really wants to leave and cross over into the West. Uh, and I don't want to say too much about what happens, but the the lovers are separated, they're reunited, then they're separated and reunited as mm-hmm. as they make decisions in their lives, many of which are very bad decisions yes. for their own health exactly. and own well-being, but somehow bring them together when they are when circumstances tear them apart. And it's 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 clearly it's one of those stories where um, you know they 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 are they make them make each other miserable but they can't help it they can't stop wanting to be together and uh and even when they're happy they seem kind of you know tormented uh it's 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 a i would say compared to Ida, it's a much lighter tone I, in some ways you could describe it as a comedy but it's very very dry yeah and uh it's funny yeah. i wouldn't call it a comedy but well, there are moments. There are moments. I mean, oh, yeah, there's yeah. Fu- well, there's funny moments in Eda too. And, yeah, and and, terif- and horrifying ones. So yeah. it's yeah, it's it's. 
But that's, uh, you know, that's the, that's the, I guess, the, you know, the, the Eastern European feel. You know, you take the, the heavy moments with the, the, the lighter moments and they just, you know, headbutt against each yeah. other from one moment to the next. And you got to just take what comes. Uh, yeah. You know, and the role of music in Cold War uh, is also... Uh, another aspect that I that I just loved about it. It, it it's weird it feels like like a like a cold war version of of a star is born maybe yeah I know for sure um in more ways than one and uh but but here like the, the the music is very organic in the way it's part of the movie I mean we get the the folkloric stuff which uh, at the start because of course that's where they meet at the school for Polish folklore and then the, you know when, when she becomes a kind of a the jazz siren um and it's it's beautiful and, and and but at the same time like you can see why she makes that transition because those polish folk songs are all about loss and heartache and and so on and just you know the transition to becoming a torch singer is it seems uh, nearly seamless and it's yeah. fun. she adapts it makes sense. she adapts some of the songs that she sang yeah. as folk songs into jazz saving you know slowing them down of course, changing the arrangements and, and making them. I mean, they're quite lovely songs. I, I enjoyed the Polish folk songs when they're all singing together and their vo- the harmonies and the chorus are incredible. The choir is really something. But then when she gets an opportunity to sing the song solo, uh, it's also just as beautiful. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I, loved, I love the music. I, and, and, you know, bring, to come back to the, uh, the performances, Kulig, she, I kind of compared her to sort of Christiane Kubrick, Circa Paz of Glory. You know, at the okay, end of that, yeah. she reminded me a little bit of her, uh, but she also reminded me of the French actor Leah Seydoux and a little bit of Jennifer Lawrence too. There's some kind of like, you know, cult of personality there. She has all those star qualities that uh, that you know I, I expect that before long we'll be seeing her again, if not in another, you know, French or uh, or Polish film in a in a Hollywood uh, movie when they uh, pluck her and uh, and we'll see how her English is, but uh, that would be really something. Yeah, for me, uh, she was a dead ringer for uh, an, uh, an actor, Hannah Brezhkova, who was the star of Milos Forman's first feature, Loves of a Blonde from 1965. Oh, yeah. Um, which it, it's, it's, I don't know if it's an inspiration in any way, but I mean, music doesn't play a part in that film. She, in that case, I think she's like a factory worker and, you know, tr- trying to come into her own as a, as a young adult in uh, Czechoslovakia in the in the mid '60s. But um, but there's a very I, well, she has a kind of a puppy dog <laughs> kind of thing about. I I hate to, I hesitate to use that term, but it's you know she just has the the big eyes and 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 the the you know kind of an, an adorable look to her and uh, that makes you just kind of fall for her right away and I, I feel that um, it was the same case with Cold War I thought there was a, a very uh, distinct resemblance there and uh, you know it's it's funny like I was, I've been, was reading about how uh, Paul Lukowski, for example for for Ida he couldn't find an, an actor to play the title character it was a young woman who's becoming about to become a nun and he couldn't find an, an actor that he liked that just really embodied the, the sort of innocent young woman who's kind of Trying to run away from the modern world, but at the same time is, you know, mildly fascinated by it. And and he he asked friends of his to just take pictures of people in cafes and on the street if they saw someone that fit the bill of what he was looking for. And that's how he found his star for no Ida. kidding. Yeah, wow. And so, so that was she never had she hadn't had any acting experience apparently prior to that film, and she's amazing in it. So um, you know, clearly he's a gifted director when it comes to his actors, but also like you know really knows what he wants in terms of. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of his casting, and it, it, we should note that uh, also uh, 
there's a connection between uh, Ida and Cold War in that um, uh, jo- jo- Joanna, Joanna Kulig, Joanna Kulig um, shows up in Ida as a singer with a with a sort of rock and roll jazz band uh, that shows up uh, partway through the film when uh, Ida and her aunt wind up at a they pick up a hitchhiker who turns out to be a saxophonist who plays in this band uh, that's playing in this cafe in this town that they're going to and the singer <laughs> sure enough it's uh, it's uh, Joanna Kulig from Cold War and. She doesn't have any lines. She's never really, I don't think she's identified, but part of me want, thought, well, what if she, what if it's the same character? I wouldn't be surprised. You know, yeah. during, because there's, there's a period of time where where she's, you know, she and um, Victor are apart in Cold War and she she's back in Poland, presumably still singing. And she, you know, wouldn't be surprised if she'd hooked up with this band, rock and roll band. Yeah. To, you know, to in the interim, so it's it's all. I almost feel I in my heart. I want to feel like these two films intersect. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. I think I think that's a reasonable theory. Um, but you know, the thing about that's different about Ida and Cold War is that Ida takes place in a fairly restricted time frame. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. It's whereas Cold tighter. War jumps from the late '40s to the mid '60s, and in a way, structurally, is one of the riskiest sort of ways it's put together because a structure like this shouldn't, I mean, I've seen it tried before and it doesn't work nearly as well as it does here where you feel completely rooted and connected to these characters, but you're spending brief periods of time with them before you rush forward another four or five years. Like you just leap through time in a way. And of course it's signposted by the music that we're hearing. Yes. You know, first folk music, then jazz, then rock and roll. And, uh, and we see, you know, we see the Zula's character her career advance and her personal choices advance as well. Um, some good, some not so good. But uh, but yeah, I was amazed at how um, you know it, it. The film kept you guessing in terms of like, well, where are we going to from here? At no point did I ever get a sense I knew where it was headed, and I think that's one of the reasons I liked it so much. Yeah, and of course the the, the toll that time takes on the characters is shown in their performances and in you know obviously you know they're kind of aged psychologically <laughs> through their performances over the course of the film. And that's, that's a, that's a clue to the passage of time as well, which is another reason why you have to really, it's a film that requires your attention and your focus. And, um, uh, but it, but it pays back, uh, richly. Last and certainly not least is, uh, one of those rare films that's up for best foreign language film, but also up for best picture. And that is, uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which uh, had a limited theatrical run, uh, partly because it has to in order to qualify for an Academy Award, uh, you know, the whole promotion thing, but also because um, it was going to Netflix, uh, even though it really should be seen on a big screen. And I'm, I'm sorry I haven't had that opportunity myself. Uh, but yeah, because it, 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 Carbon Arc showed, showed it a handful of times indeed. I think, in the last few yeah, weeks. Yeah, they had this opportunity to to bring it in, uh, made a deal with Netflix who were interested in showing it locally and showing different places on the big screen. And it re- I saw it twice, saw it once on my, my television screen, which was great, but I really, I think I really benefited from seeing, seeing it uh, on the big screen where it's widescreen kind of epic, epic, domestic epic vision uh, could really be appreciated. And uh, funnily enough, um, I was chatting with our, uh, the Carbon Arc um, uh, projectionist uh, Kenny, and uh, he is uh, he has a long, long experience as a projectionist, and and uh, of course he had seen at that at that point. I think he saw like 
because it screened multiple times at Carbonarchy. I think it, by the time I talked to him, he had seen it maybe seven times. <laughs> and he was noticing patterns in the film that he only noticed because, because he had seen it so often. And he was talking about you know, little sound cues and little and crowd scenes where he noticed things going on in the background that sort of informed or at least foreshadowed some of the stuff that happened later. Um, he noticed that one of the funniest things he mentioned was there is a scene where uh, it takes place in a family, a sort of upper middle class family home in Mexico City in the early 70s. Um, the husband, the, the, the parents' lives are fracturing uh, and uh, they have, you know, many kids, but uh, their, their lives are, their relationships falling apart and the father leaves and when he, the scene where he leaves, uh, there is a, a marching band going down the yes. street, a really loud, <laughs> yeah. sort of militaristic marching band. Yeah, bugles only. <laughs> yeah. And it's very loud and, and percussive. And then they cut to a scene of in the driveway of this house where they have birds in cages. And Kenny mentioned that the, the birds were singing that song. They oh had like, gosh. they had mimicked the song of the band, <laughs> which I completely missed. But, you know, given how many times he'd seen it, he noticed that, which I think is kind of delightful. Well, I mean, you know, so, I mean, we see the band again later in the film. So clearly the, the marching band is, is a recurring event on their street because uh, obviously the birds have learned the song. I mean, our bird, Alfie, uh, you know, we've taught him to whistle the good, the bad, and the ugly theme. Oh, and, nice. And uh, the Smurfs theme and a little bit of Fraggle Rock, but he can't quite take it over the finish line. But <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> we've taught him a few songs and I, I tried to teach him the Muppet Show recently, but he hasn't quite grasped it. But but that's, yeah, th there's there's a lot going on in this film. I mean, Quaron is a gifted filmmaker. He, uh, you know, oddly enough, uh, you know, he, I forgot that like his first couple of films were actually, you know, he he'd done some work in Mexico, Mexico, of course, where he's from. Uh, but then he made Great Expectations, the sort of modern day remake uh -huh. with uh, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Robert De Niro, and uh, and then uh, a quite good uh, remake of A Little Princess, um, which of course was originally uh, I think a Shirley Temple film and, and maybe even a silent film before that. Uh, it's an old old story, and they did quite a quite a lovely remake or updating of that story. But then he really, uh, and, and those films were, you know, they did okay, I guess. Great Expectations was an interesting take on, on the Dickens novel. But then uh, when he went home and made E2 Mama Tambien, um, about a woman on a road trip with two young men, um, that uh, that was the film that really kind of established him as, as an important voice uh, and, uh, and kind of lifted him into the realm of, of great uh, modern-day filmmakers. And then, of course, he came back with uh, Children of Men, which is a, a kind of a, not apocalyptic, but certainly a dystopian future. Uh -huh. um, where, it's amazing. Which, which is an incredible film. And um, He did one of the best Harry Potter films, Prisoner yes. of Azkaban, the third one. I'd say it is the, the probably the best one. Yeah. He actually did that before Children of Men, I guess. Right. And then uh, and Gravity, which is, is an astonishing uh, film in so many ways. Uh, and then now he's, uh, he's, and he's, he took a bit of a break. Um, I think he d was developing a TV series, uh, after gravity, but now he's back with Roma, which is based on stories of his own childhood, um, and his family in Mexico city and, um, his relationship with the housekeeper who is, um, an indigenous, from an indigenous Mexican family. And, uh, and the film is dedicated to her and it's, you know, it, he basically just kind of chronicled all these childhood memories that he had and uh, I, th I think they are kind of fictionalized um, to a certain degree but for the most part I think everything in the film uh, happened more or less as he remembered it 
Yeah, yeah. And it's a really amazing looking film. I think it's worth saying that the films are worth seeing just for the cinematography, just for the look and, and the sound design of the film. Uh, previously, Koran worked with Oscar winning director of photography, Emmanuel Chivo Lubezki. But in this film, he shot it himself. So he wrote it directed it, shot it, and edited it himself. So this is very much his baby. And uh, the recreation of Mexico City in the early 70s just is astonishing. Just I, get, I feel like I've been there now, having seen this film. Um, and the casting, it's really a story about motherhood. Um, Marina de Tavera is the mother in the family who winds up having to take care of these kids mostly on her own because she's abandoned by her husband. And then... Uh, uh, their housekeeper, Cleo, played by Yelitsa Aparicio, who is indigenous, and uh, it's it's a funny film in some ways because for me, I remember the first time I watched it, it took me a while to feel engaged by it because it has this sort of languorous pacing and the, you know, the the family, although there is this drama going on within the family and within the life of the housekeeper, um, it's fairly domestic. It's fairly almost pastoral. There's a there's an you know life sort of snapshots of life quality to it. But that I found that incredibly uh, lovely to watch. But I don't know that I was super engaged by it emotionally. But then by the third act. Um, there are two major events in the lives of the housekeeper and of the family that uh, bring home. Like I found myself blubbing watching oh, yeah, on the scene on the beach. Like I just couldn't. Oh my god! It. I that's I, oh. <laughs> yeah. I can't even express how I felt during that scene. That yeah, was... like it was incredible. And and I it what it took me so by surprise because I was like, oh, this is a lovely film. It's nice. It's great to look at. I'm enjoying this sort of snaps sights of life in Mexico City. But then it hits you with like a gut punch of emotion that completely surprised me and, and made me love the film that much more. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Aparicio's performance as Cleo is astonishing. It's, it's She is so wonderful and it's such a, a, a beautiful character. And uh, and that's, you know, that's what I, and that's, I think by, you know, really tightening the focus on her, um, it's, it's interesting that you can compare it to shoplifters, that they're very similar in a lot of ways, but somehow Roma gets a lot of things right that shoplifters kind of drifts past in a way that 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 uh, you know the, the the Roma you know builds towards something, um, and uh, and has that that stronger focus that makes it the the better film and of course the the, the look you know the, the the focus on the look of it and and everything um, the uh, it's, it's and it's interesting that two of these films are in black and white it's great to see that coming back and uh-huh. seeing how. I mean, obviously, they're they're not film black and white; they're digital black and white, which is kind of a different ball game in a way. I mean, it's I mean, the look is similar, um, but but the the digital I think photography gives it a clarity that uh-huh. um, that uh, that you wouldn't necessarily find in say a Raging Bull. You know, I'm trying to think of a, like a you know more modern day, if you will, uh, yeah. black and white film. Whereas this uh, brings everything into razor sharp focus. The depth of field is uh, very clear. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to see somebody work with this palette, uh, with the new technology, and uh, and show that it's it's you know that black and white film filmmaking isn't dead, and that it does serve a purpose, and uh, it is amazing to look at. Yeah, you know, and absolutely. You know, I I hope to see that maybe become a trend. Uh, I don't need to see every film in black and white, but you know, it does make something stand out, and it does. You know, if something's historical, it certainly. Uh, you know, it certainly puts you in the past a lot quicker than than 
you know, a color film might. Yeah, I agree. And and it's interesting to compare uh, Cold War with Roma in terms of how they use black and white. Cold War is, I think, a darker film. It has more... Um, contrast and I yeah. you know I think about the beginning of Cold War set in the snowy yeah. yeah in the snowy kind of uh, uh, countryside but there's also scenes in the summertime where they're sitting in the long grass and it's very very lovely but there's urban scenes like you jump around a lot where with Roma of course it's named after the the neighborhood that um, that Cuaron grew up in in Mexico City and uh, the the I mean I know it's not sepia but it's almost got that sense of the dust and the sun and it's almost like a yellower black and white in a way that um, but really suits really suits that film in a way that I just I really I found it very easy on the eyes yeah and uh, I'm, I'm hoping uh, now of course you're going to hear this after the Academy Awards I think Roma is probably going to win this category. Yeah, or and, or uh, maybe Best Picture too. Like it's possible it might win both. It's certainly going to win one. Yeah, I think so. And uh, you know, it's uh, we don't have the benefit of hindsight. Of course, I could add something Monday morning. But, <laughs> you know, what? I'm, you know, I'm going to be a purist. I'm not going to fiddle with this uh, recording. We're recommending these films to watch, whether they win or not. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. You don't have to just watch the winner. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's kind of. I mean, the Academy Awards when they started picking uh, best foreign language or best foreign film, foreign language film. Um, you know, it was because, you know, the, the, it it gave the films a, a note of prestige, I guess, that that, that world cinema and, and uh, Hollywood cinema could coexist peacefully and that, uh, you know, if you thought yourself cultured, you would seek out these films that they came to your, I don't know, they might, I mean, in those days, there wasn't an art house circuit per se, uh, and uh, it's interesting that the, the kind of the, the exploitation film market and the foreign film market kind of developed in parallel lines uh, with the occasional crisscross when there was a, a, a foreign film that had some sexy moments in it. They could really sell that. There's, a, there's some hilarious campaigns for some early Ingmar Bergman films, for example, um, because <laughs> because they, they were occasionally more racier than anything you'd find in a, in a Hollywood film. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's nice that in the age of... of I mean, it's sad to see that the theatrical experience is becoming rarer and rarer for a lot of people. But at the same time, you know, being able to see Roma on Netflix has brought it to a much wider audience. And, you know, if it wins, which is likely, uh, maybe there'll be a, a brief theatrical revival of it. Even though it's available on a streaming platform, uh, its prominence may inspire the, the chains to, to put it back on the big screen yeah. for, for a little while. Yeah, and clearly Netflix was was good with it showing up and getting little pockets of, of screenings if they were willing to share it with uh, Carbon Arc uh, here in Halifax. So, so yeah, it's an interesting little dance that they've gotten. It's hard to psychoanalyze this streaming giant because really they have they have all all the money now. Like they can do, they have had enormous success and as a result they can choose how to spend it and how to promote films and but but uh it'll be interesting to see i guess and again this speaks to the fact that we haven't seen the oscars yet happening later um but uh whether or not the the discussion pre-oscars is about whether or not the academy is willing to accept netflix as a legitimate you know film producer and if they anoint roma with a big award uh, that would send a message that, okay, we, we realize that Netflix has arrived and it's a major player in the studio system and uh, therefore we have to give them their due, even if they are. Some people do think of them as the devil uh, because of the way it, it, Netflix is, is undercutting the traditional cinematic uh, model. 
Well, it just you know, just the exposure for the for some of these projects is is, is remarkable. This is it's like it's you know, more people have seen Roma now than would have had it played theatrically. Yeah. It just uh, and Bird Box was a huge hit. Apparently, and they don't talk that much about viewing numbers, but the this is the uh, Sandra Bullock film from December that that still is running on Netflix, and it's it's like a it's a sci-fi picture directed by Suzanne Beer, another previously uh, foreign language film. Uh, her film, um, I think, After the Wedding, one of one of her films from yeah. a few years ago won Best Foreign Language Film, uh, Danish filmmaker. So she makes this genre picture, uh, another dystopia. The, sort of horror sci-fi and uh, huge numbers on Netflix, apparently like big, 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 uh, much bigger than it would have had in the cinema. So, so, you know, I, there's no way that the industry in uh, Los Angeles is not paying attention to this. So it's just a matter of whether they want to legitimize it or not with the awards. That wraps up our look at uh, three of the five uh, foreign language Oscar contenders and potentially one winner <laughs> this year uh, at the, uh, the Academy Awards taking place uh, two days ago, if you're hearing this on Tuesday. Um, and uh, even though we haven't seen the other two, uh, the two contenders, uh, Never Look Away and uh, and Capernaum, they, they look Intriguing. I, I recommend hunting down the uh, the trailers for those. Uh, Never look away, of course, from the director of the Lives of Others, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. Um, inspired by a real life story, a fictionalized story based on the life of uh, Gerhard Richter, who um, grew up in East Germany during the Second World War and then during the Nazi regime, and then, of course, became known uh, during uh, the post-war period, uh, and uh, basically. Um, it's about a, a young young man who uh, sees degenerate art uh, that has been banned by the Nazis, and that inspires him to create um, after uh, after the Third Reich has fallen. Uh, but there's also uh, connections, uh, family connections to that past that he can't escape, uh, especially because his um, his potential father-in-law, I guess, was connected with the Nazi eugenics program, and this is sort of something that follows them into, into the present. So that uh, uh, kind of like uh, the, the Polish films from uh, Polakowski, the, the specter of the war hangs over uh, the, uh, the the later days, uh, the later period. And Capernaum is, I believe... Is it Capernaum or Capernaum? Oh, Cap- I'm, not, I'm not even sure, to be honest. <laughs> I think uh, it might be Capernaum. It but. might be Capernaum. <laughs> I've never heard it pronounced. It's um, a Lebanese film. Uh, and uh, well, it's well. The, uh, the spelling has an H in it. Okay. Kafarnom. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, uh, my apologies to everyone involved with this film. But it's <laughs> mine it's, too. <laughs> but it's, it's an intriguing story about a boy who sues his parents for bringing him into such a terrible world. So, yeah. uh, and know. it's it's a, a dark, uh, definitely a social realist film, and it's playing on Friday, March the first. I think I might have mentioned this earlier, but anyway, once again at uh, Carbonark um, on, at seven o'clock. So, uh, you know, if you're interested and you're hearing my voice right now and you think, oh, this is I want to catch up with more of the best foreign language nominees. Um, you can go to Carbon Arc, their website, and uh, and buy tickets in advance, which I always recommend because they often sell out, uh, especially for a film like this, which has gotten a lot of attention thanks to the Academy Awards. The German film uh, Never Look Away will be, uh, I think maybe the last week of March will be shown. Uh, it's on the schedule at Carbon Arc as well. Yeah, and uh, well. Uh 
Capernaum, Capernaum, Capernaum. Uh, it was, I'll get it right one of these days. It, it looks a bit like a fable, and it weirdly reminds me of my first uh, foreign language winner, A Tin Drum, has a similar story about uh, a child who uh, takes on adults and, and uh, you know, refuses to be part of a world he didn't ask to be born into. So uh, a bit of a continuance there, although this time from a perspective uh, from the Middle East. Anyway, hopefully you, you catch up with some of these films and some of the other titles we mentioned from years gone by. And uh, we'll see you next time on Lens Me Your Ears. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here, and you can catch me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Right, I've got a Twitter handle as well, and it's named after my blog, which is Flaw in the Iris, and Lens Me Your Ears has a Twitter handle as well. If you'd like, it also has a Facebook page. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon. Uh, I don't know the exact name of it, but I'm sure if you go to Patreon and look it up, it's there. And uh, you can support us with a few bucks here or there. That would be most appreciated. And of course, thanks as always to the people here at CKDU 88.1 FM for the use of their facilities and for airing our show every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And also the technical wizards at Village Sound who put it all together and make it sound so nice. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>